0: Alright, so we've been in a little series on dominion, and um, the, the point of this class, the primary point of this class, is to teach you that there is a gospel promise in the Bible that is for us to receive by faith regarding victory in history. Let me say that one more time. The purpose of this class is to teach you an aspect of the gospel, which is for us to receive, to claim, to enjoy, and to live by. And that aspect of the gospel is that there will be victory by Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, His church on earth in history. We are not, as the church, we are not the Alamo. You all know the story of the Alamo, right? Backed into a corner low on ammunitions, low on food, with nowhere to go. All right? We are not the Alamo. There will not ever be a moment in which the church is a small, defenseless, puny, little uh, ragtag group of, of outlaws. Um, and then right before they storm the gates, we are whisked away in a secret, invisible snatching to the mothership. That will never occur. That will not occur. And the belief in that is a bad belief that has bad effects on your life, as we will continue to talk about. Rather, we are the armies of the living God, and we march forward victoriously with the captain of the Lord's army out in front of us to conquer the land, the land which we have been given, which is what? The earth. That includes all the peoples of the earth, the nations, the families of the earth. We, of course, do not conquer them with the weapons of this world, but with the weapons which are divinely powerful and spiritual. And this is an essential aspect of the gospel. This is not a peripheral issue. This is not a hobby horse. But this is an aspect of the gospel which is, univer- well, is typically rejected by the church in America. The church in America has remained invincibly ignorant over this particular promise. And uh, it is my calling to be a Bible teacher. And so I have to make war with preaching and prayer against these lofty opinions. And that's the point of this class, all right? You say, but Pastor Brandon, everyone believes that Jesus will eventually be victorious. Yes, and that's good, right? I'm glad for that, right? That everyone believes in victory eventually, but that's not what I'm teaching. I'm not teaching victory eventually. That is not debated. I'm talking about victory in history. That is what is debated. You can, you've heard the expression, the already but not yet. Who's heard that? It's become at this point a cliche. It's a cliche you say to dismiss any arguments that begin to confuse you or upset you. Um, when the pastor begins to confuse you with the facts, you respond already, but not yet. That is not a proper way to receive the teaching of God's Word. That is a dismissive, defensive, cliche tactic, all right? You have to be self-aware enough as a Christian, and self-awareness is a gift from the Holy Spirit. You have to be self-aware enough to know when you're having an emotional knee-jerk reaction, right? Um, when, When the shepherd is leading you to greener pastures, and you do what a normal sheep does and immediately run the opposite direction, that is not the proper response to your pastor. Amen? You have to recognize that God has given you pastors. um, They're gifts from God. I am God's gift to you, as funny as that sounds. (laughs) It is true, and I'm supposed to teach you that. And uh, I certainly don't feel like that half the time, but that that is what the Bible teaches. And so even if you were to initially disagree with the pastor, you wouldn't want to knee-jerk, emotionally reject, and shoot him with a cliché. That's not the proper way to do it. Rather, what you would do is um, be teachable, give him the benefit of the doubt, maybe put it on the shelf for a little while, chew on it, and, um, and be open, Right? Unfortunately, as a pastor, when I'm teaching something that is a deconstruction of the American church's fundamental beliefs, it's not easy to do. I'm trying to um, deconstruct worldviews here. I'm trying to get underneath the skin of the worldview that we were all raised in. So that's very difficult. You don't see the whole picture. And so all I'm left to do is each class, I'm here's a few puzzle pieces. Here's a few more puzzle pieces. Here's a few more puzzle pieces. It's not easy to do. And, and if you're just like pew, pew, with those puzzle pieces, then we'll ne- you'll never see the whole. You'll never see it. But if you just be teachable and, and say, well, he's not insane. He loves Jesus. He, does, he is called to this. Let me give him the benefit of the doubt. And let me just take in these puzzle pieces and see if some, at some point I can't see the picture on the cover of the box. All right. That's the goal of this class to help you to see that, yes, Jesus, of course, wins eventually. But I'm telling you that he wins in history. In other words, I'm talking to you about not the already and not the not yet. We believe in the already. The legal um, victory has been purchased. And we believe in the not yet. The ultimate, uttermost victory will be accomplished. But I'm talking about the space between the already and the not yet that 's where the debate lies. Amen, see what i 'm saying, which is why saying "Already, not yet is really not helpful because yes, agreed, but we 're talking about the space in between. all right, so with that, um, let me uh, give you a quote from Athanasius. This is nothing new, by the way. This is what Christians held for nearly over fifteen hundred years sixteen seventeen eighteen hundred years. Um, But dispensationalism crept into the church. And, of course, dispensationalism, like all false teachings, has uh, mothers and grandmothers that emerged before it um, came on the scene. But this is the faith that was always taught by the saints. This is the faith once for all delivered. This is a crucial aspect of the gospel, that the nations would become Christian and that they would inherit the earth while they're still nations, Romans chapter 4. Right? Abraham believed it, and we need to believe it. All right, listen to what Athanasius said. He said, while being persecuted and living in exile because he was standing up for the Trinity, you know, things weren't looking good for him, the headlines weren't reading well, but he still said this. On the other hand, while idolatry and everything else that opposes the faith of Christ is daily dwindling and weakening and falling, the Savior's teaching is increasing everywhere. And that is still true, that is so true we, we immediately think things are going to get worse until Jesus returns. That is not in the Bible. That is in our Greek philosophical tradition, okay? That is not in the Bible. And um, even though it has been pounded into our heads from birth, it is a pessimism that is not biblical. And it is not a faith. It must be rejected, okay? Um, we, and this is ironic, in the West, with the Ten Commandments on the wall of our Supreme Court building, and um, our president's hand on the Bible, and um, these basically immediate Bible study apps Greek, Hebrew, cross references in the palm of our hand, which can be transmitted across the world at a second, sitting in air condition on a leather sofa, watching a church service through a screen while drinking the fruit of the vine, and then we're like, this world's going to hell in a handbasket. (laughs) That is sinful. That is sinful, right? The world is not getting worse. It is way better now, okay? Way better. Infant mortality rates, lifespan, and many other, many other covenant promises are way, way better. I mean, look at the facts. Look at the circumstances. It's getting better. This is the faith that caused the medieval church to build cathedrals, not metal sheds. We, unfortunately, live in a secular world. And because of various factors, mainly the fact that we are a small little church, we will have to build a metal shed. But we build a metal shed with the hopes of it becoming the gym right next door to a cathedral, right? <laughs> so to put it this way, I heard a story of a seminary that was built to train pastors. And um, it was, I don't know, it was a majestic and beautiful structure. And I can't remember the name of the seminary. It's in England. And um, Hundreds, cent, centuries went by, and the oaken beams which held up the main structure had become dry rot. You all have heard this story before, probably. And that's what happens with wood. Over six, 700 years, it can become dry rot, even if it's a hardwood. And so they wanted to replace these, but the trees in the country were not that big. There was no trees in the country big enough. To replace these beams, because as you well know, there's been clear cutting and not a lot of uh, good sustainable practices, and it takes a long time to grow those, those historic trees, right? And so there was no place for them to, rep- to, no way for them to repair these oaken beams. They were gonna have to use, you know, something not as majestic. And they wanted something majestic, it was in a beautiful facility. And so um, while they were debating what they were going to do about it, a janitor um, came up with an idea because he had found the original plans of the building down in the basement. And he pulled out those original plans, and there in the original plans it noted that the trees planted around the campus were for the purpose of replacing the beams. And so they harvested the trees on the campus, which were majestic and massive, and they replaced the oaken beams. You see, they built with the faith and the knowledge that this place is going to be around for a long time. We are not doomed to inevitable apostasy. We, the, the time is not at hand, right? We have a job to do. And by God's grace, through faith, um, we can build a cathedral And we can even prepare the trees so that our great-grandchildren can maintenance it when necessary. Why did Columbus sail the ocean blue? Read his journal. Because he knew this hope. Because he knew that the nations would be discipled, and he wanted to open up a faster route to the Indies. It's debated as to whether or not he knew, but little did he know he would actually stumble upon something much bigger than the Indies right? Why did the pilgrims colonize North America? It's because they believed the nations would be discipled. It's because they were establishing a foothold in another hemisphere in obedience to the Great Commission. That's why they risked their lives for this. Columbus was not the first person to discover the Western Hemisphere. Tons of people came here before him. There's even evidence that Phoenicians were here, the Vikings were certainly here. There's Pacific Islanders were here. And of course, you know, all of the, the, those who came through probably a migration from Eastern Asia over the Bering Strait and settled this entire region, you know, they were there. And those who came after them, which replaced them, probably six or 700 years after Jesus, the, one, the ones who were here when Columbus got here. All those peoples moving and migrating, all of them coming to the Western Hemisphere, but remaining for thousands of years as nomadic tribes. Right? Only a few like civilizations built to last, and even those, not much. Why is it that when one particular uh, culture, one particular worldview arrives on the shores, they say they begin to colonize and to build? Certainly they were not perfect, and many of them were evil, but the pilgrims came and they colonized because they believed this particular promise. They weren't here to rape and to pillage and to steal all the natural resources and then move on to the next spot. They were here to lay a gospel foundation because they believed in gospel progress. All right. <clears throat> um, that is really, this gospel promise, this truth is really um, one of the primary pillars of Western civilization. And its loss is one of the reasons why Western civilization is crumbling. And it's the church's fault primarily. The church is the one that opened up these fissures in the foundation into which humanism has slithered. So we have to, as a church, if we're going to lay a solid foundation for the next generation and for generations to come, we have to lay this solid foundation here in Acadiana, one that believes in the gospel hope, one that believes in the inevitable victory of Jesus in history. That's our calling. That is our goal. And even if the foundation is a small one, we have to make sure we lay it without cracks in it. Right? It doesn't matter how big your foundation is. It matters how solid and secure your foundation is. Because even if it's the size of one loaf and a few fishes, Jesus can multiply it. But if it's got cracks in it, and it's built on sand, the sand of dispensationalism, it will not last. So, I mixed a lot of metaphors there. Hope you got it, though. Does this make any practical difference, Pastor Brandon, if we believe this? Yes, ideas have consequences. You've heard that phrase before. You've probably read the book, right? But Proverbs 23, verse 7 says this. For as he thinketh in his heart, this is the King James, so is he. Out of the abundance of the heart does the mouth speak, and, I would add, the hands act and the feet act act it's out of your heart which flows the wellsprings of life it's not what goes in a man which defiles him or cleans him it's that which comes out of his heart if in the heart of course in the hebrew worldview is not your emotion center it's the core of who you are right it's where your faith is held and if you have false beliefs inside your heart it will manifest itself and it will manifest itself in your generations as well because it's you know you have kids that are being caught they're catching more than you're actually teaching them with their mouth with your mouth right so obviously we need a new heart as Christians we must be regenerated um, but then I, that heart needs to be shaped by the truth and um, the more your heart is shaped by the truth the more your actions are in line with the truth and the gospel and um, and, and that's where we can experience victory in our lives. Because faith is the victory which overcomes the world. Faith in what? Faith in the promises, this one included. Make sense? A little bit? So let's go on to the Great Commission. That's our main point today. That was just the introduction. Matthew 28, starting at verse 19. Listen to this Great Commission. This is the full final blossoming and culmination of the dominion mandate given to man in Genesis chapter 1. This is how the dominion mandate is going to be accomplished. Adam was given it, but he failed, right? Jesus, the second Adam, was given it. He will not fail. And this is his um, means of accomplishing it by the power of the Holy Spirit on earth. Here it is. Go. It does not say go. It says go therefore. And what was it that he said before? All authority... In heaven and earth has been given me, which is another way of saying all dominion, all rule, the right to the throne of David has been given to me. Therefore, go. See? We go as ambassadors of a king, we go with a a kingly commission. We are deputies of the kingdom of heaven. Go, therefore, and make disciples of some of the people in each of the nations. Anybody have that translation? All right, get rid of it. All right. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, the ethnos. Well, in this case, ethnoi, of the nations. How many of the nations? All nations. How do we make disciples of all nations? First, we give them the initiatory rite of entrance into the covenant community, which is baptism. And then, after they have been initiated into the covenant community through the sign of baptism, we then do what? Next slide. Teach them to observe, a.k.a. obey, in thought, word, and deed, all that Jesus has commanded, the laws of God none of which he has abolished, and all of which remain intact today, down to their most minuscule detail, down to the jot and to the tittle, right? How do we disciple the nations? Under the authority and the banner of King Jesus, we go forward with an authoritative commission, right? There's a lot of periods and exclamation points on the ends of our sentences, not questions. We are ambassadors of the king, and we baptize the nations and teach them to obey the law of God. That's how we do it. Unfortunately, the American church, what are they doing? They're teaching Christians how to become Christians every Sunday. Every single Sunday, here come the Christians. Let's teach the Christians how to become Christians again. Right? And they do it through a habitual um, altar call, walk in the eye, I see that hand, I see that hand. All of this flows from the rejection of gospel promises, including this one. Our goal is not to teach Christians how to become Christians every Sunday. Our goal is to disciple the nations. Right? Now, of course, implied in this is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that comes to us through that. Right? Who who can obey the law if it's not for the power of the Holy Spirit given to you as a promise of the new covenant gospel? No one. So implied in this is we have to convert people. We have to teach them the gospel. Right? Implied in this is the power of regeneration. Implied in this is faith to faith to faith. Um, but this is the overarching commission for us, and this is how it's to take place. And as the nations are discipled in how to obey the law of God through the church's instruction and modeling right all of life will be impacted because the word of god applies to all of life and that will create a christian a christian culture that's right that christian culture will have uh, ethnic nuances which are beautiful and great but it will create a christian culture as the laws of god are obeyed in the power of the holy spirit in the arts in media, in science, in math, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. See what I mean? Whose job is it to do this? The people with the Holy Spirit. The people with the commission, the authoritative commission. And we are to do this, right, in the power of Jesus, with Jesus, because he says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is the captain of the Lord's army, and he goes before us on our conquest, that's the Great Commission, the culmination of the dominion mandate given in Genesis chapter 1. See? That, and I'm going to just tell you just to, as a side note, this is why young men like Christchurch. Because young men want to know their purpose in life. They want to get on board. They want to know the mission. And they know this mission now. And this is why they like to come here. All right. So, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, this commission will certainly be accomplished. Of course, it's being done by Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Of course, he's going to accomplish it, right? Does he set out to do anything that he doesn't accomplish? No, of course not. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel sees in one of his eschatological visions. He sees, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's Jesus, the Son of Man, ascending through the um, clouds of heaven, the A.K.A., the Shekinah glory of heaven. And there he came, one like a son of man, a human, and he came to the Ancient of Days, the Father, and was presented before the Father. This happened at the ascension. And what does the Father do in return to him? Verse 14, And to the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who ascended through the Shekinah glory clouds of heaven to the ancient of days, to him was given dominion, rule, authority, and glory, and a kingdom. Now, who's in this kingdom? That all peoples, nations. Now, that word all um, applies to peoples and to nations. This is a particular um, Grammatical expression, when you put a, a, uh, an and or an all in front of a list of words, it applies to each one of those nouns in that list. So all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve, which is a Hebrew word for worship, Him. His dominion is how big? Well, it, it encompasses all of time. It is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That is a global kingdom. And it is a kingdom which will experience victory during the time period of earth. Where there are languages and nations and peoples. And families, if I throw in a few other verses. Not after the end of the space-time continuum. right? Not after time or after the end of human history, when there is no longer marriages, which means there's no longer families or nations, that future world, we don't yet know what it will be like. Not much has been made away, given to us, Paul says. Right? But during this time period on earth, there shall be dominion. Right? So, um, one of the responses that I, are given to me on this is that, well, you know, I still think there's suffering in the world. Okay. Um, Once again, emotional cliche. That's the jigsaw puzzle, just hit them in the forehead and they're mad about it now. So, you don't believe in suffering? Okay, no. Listen, the kingdom advances very oftentimes through suffering. All right? This is not a comfortable doctrine that the world is getting better and better automatically with no hiccups, no difficulties, no trials and tribulations and afflictions. Jesus said you will always have afflictions as long as you're in this world. But it's through the afflictions that we experience victory. This is not a Pollyannish doctrine. Y'all know that word? Pollyannish? From a movie in the 20s, I think. or Something like that. About a girl who always could see the, the bright side of things. Right? And she was irrational though. No, this is not an irrational Um, head-in-the-sand positive thinking. This is a belief in the gospel that God works all things for good. In other words, Jesus is on the throne. He is ruling. Is there anything by which he rules? Is there any um, terms and conditions of his rule? It's the law. And the law tells us that if you keep it, In faith, of course, in the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be blessed. And if you don't, you will be cursed. Those curses are listed for us clearly in Scripture in several places, right? Man still does reap what he sows, individually and nationally. And so as Jesus rules over time and space and over human history, he is judging. That's why oftentimes the word rule is the word judge, because he is judging men, all right? He is administering covenantal sanctions, blessings and cursings in response to man. And that's why you see a lot of suffering, a lot of affliction, and you see judgment on this earth. Um, Just to give you a metaphor, Jesus is ruling history with a great sieve. Is that how you say that word? See a sieve. And anything which is not in accord with his will is eventually shaken through. And only that which can remain, remains. And that shaking hurts, and sometimes the righteous are swept up in it. That happens, right? But the shaking is occurring, and uh, we have been given a kingdom which cannot be shaken. So to put it another way, as human history goes by, it is a scaffolding through which God builds the cathedral of his kingdom, right? When the ground shakes, that which is built on the solid rock remains and the scaffolding falls away. Every generation it goes more and more and more. All right. So what is the strategy? I remember you said, I, you'll remember I said that we are engaging in this conquest, this Great Commission conquest. But what is our strategy? What are our weapons? What is our strategy? It's 2 Corinthians 10.3. Notice. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Meaning, he's saying, the church is not called to fight wars with rifles. Now, Christians that go to church, who are also in a state covenant, they do sometimes have to use rifles. But the church is not given the sword. The church is given the word, the sword of the spirit. Um, But he said, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh... (laughs) they're much more powerful. They're supernatural. They're not natural. They have divine power to destroy castles, strongholds. I don't know if you know what a stronghold is. It's a castle, in our way of thinking. That's a metaphor, though, and here is the literal explanation. We destroy castles, a.k.a. arguments. What's an argument? Argument. Well, um, it, is a, it is based on a philosophy, for sure. I mean, Jordan teaches logic, so he could tell you, but I won't put him on the spot. Right? And an argument is a series of premises with a conclusion. Right? Premise, 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 conclusion. And uh, one of the things we do is we destroy them. Right? We destroy false, deceptive, fallacious arguments. Not only do we destroy arguments, all right, but we destroy lofty opinions. That's proud opinions. The difference between an opinion and an argument is that opinion cannot be verified and is not offered to you as a premise, premise, conclusion. You know, it's a little bit less formal. But we're not only destroying formal arguments, we're destroying proud opinions. How do we define it as lofty and needing of being destroyed? Well, it's raised against the knowledge of God. And where do we receive the knowledge of God? In the Word of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit illuminating our minds. Alright, all right, so just review so far. How do we fight this war? How do we build a foundation in Acadiana? AKA. All right, we must fight Proud, false arguments and opinions. Do you sense that this is something we should actively be doing? Or is this something that passively happens as we live our lives passively? This is active. Does this imply some level of biblical knowledge, understanding, savvy wisdom? We're not allowed to remain ignorant. Right? And pastors that keep their people ignorant are going to probably go to hell. Right? We, we have to be able to fight this war against lofty opinions and arguments. Right? We're not fighting a physical war with bullets, not unless you join the army and covenant with the federal government or local government, etc. No, we are in the church and we are fighting arguments and ideas and opinions. Makes sense. And the reason we do that is because arguments and opinions have consequences. As a man thinks, so he is. And so the pastor and the church must be engaged in helping people to think God's thoughts after him. If you get that foundation secure, the rest will flow from it. But this is our, this is our strategy. This is what we do. You ever, um, you ever seen something that someone put, let's just say, theoretically, they're from Christ Church, and they put it on the door of the church in wittenberg that we call facebook right <laughs> i'm not saying look i i just and you can talk to my wife about this later to keep me straight but i ask my wife not to be that person in our family you know occasionally there will be an issue that relates specifically to women and she will lovingly in a in a woman way say some, say something out loud in the public square right <laughs> which is facebook or shout something from the rooftops, which is Facebook. Occasionally, she will do that, but generally speaking, uh, I like to be the one. Uh, I like to be the tip of the spear, right? Being the the husband and all that makes sense, right? All right. So, but you'll see me, and you'll see other pastors, and even maybe some men in our church, and they are in the public square, which is Facebook, um, from the rooftop, which is Facebook. Um, From the door of the Church of Wittenberg, which is Facebook, right? Say something that is an argument. They will make an argument. Have you ever seen that before? Y'all seen that on Facebook before? It happens. It happens from time to time. All right, it's been a little while. Yeah, I'm trying to be patient. All right, I got to take a break every once in a while. So you see that. But has you have you ever seen it and just thought, can't they just leave well enough alone? Can't they just leave? No, thank you, Chris. <laughs> but let's trust me. Sometimes people think, "Can't they just leave well enough alone?" Why have they gotta be? And this is a this is a negative this is a negative word to put on it meddling, right? Right? Or divisive. Obviously, when someone says it that way, you already know that they're not open to the idea. Right? They've already called you a meddler or divider. Right? But what if I'm meddling with false arguments and false opinions? What if I'm dividing sheep from wolves? Well, then that's what I'm called to do. That's what we're called to do. So we present arguments and we offer up opinions with the goal of deconstructing them, demolishing them, in order that the church and the people of the church might be more secure in the knowledge of God. Because what you know about God affects how you live about God. And how your children live, very very important. Then he closes it out with this. He says, "And take every thought captive." That means enslave any thought isms. More than likely, what he is referring to there. Although you can apply it to all your thoughts as well, right? And to and do that so that they are trained to obey Christ. Right? False teaching, false religions. false false isms that are in our church and there's plenty for me to work with, right? I got plenty to work with. Even in our church, you know, in any church, there's thoughts that need to be taken captive, right? So we got our hands full. But that's how we do it, right? So note here that the Great Commission starts with the church getting its arguments and thoughts in line with the law of God, right? Look at verse 6. I'm sorry, I should have read this. Look at the last thing. Look what Paul says. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. It's a strange expression, isn't it? So who's he talking to here? He's talking to the Corinthian church, and you know the Corinthian church has struggled with their opinions and their arguments. They are messed up. He says, we're going to deconstruct all of that. We're going to put you on a solid foundation. And at the very end, he says, and we're going to punish every disobedience. Do you see what that means? Y'all know what that means? It means preaching and church discipline, basically what it means. But it's preaching and church discipline in the church. That's what's so important. How can we teach the nations to obey all that he has commanded when half the church, no, nay, 80% of the church doesn't even believe that the laws apply. 75% of the laws even apply to the church. And I'm not, I'm not, that is not hyperbole. The church by and large in America does not even believe that the Old Testament applies to them. And I'm talking about the Reformed church too, right? Right? You can ask someone who holds the New Covenant theology, which is a halfway house between dispensationalism and covenant theology. You can ask them, are we so opposed to obey the Ten Commandments? They will say, no, not directly. Only those things which are repeated in the New Testament are we to obey. You see, the church doesn't even know what we're supposed to be discipling the nations with. We are We are eight up. Is there any wonder why our nation is so uh, circling the drain right now? Because the church is so bad off with cracks and isms infesting us. So <laughs> this is certainly not my call for us to charge the gates of hell right now. We've got to clean up our own house. Judgment begins at the house of God. And that's, you know, one of the things we're trying to do right around here at Christ Church. And and honestly, that's sometimes why people, including your own family members, are mad at you. Because they know it. They sense it. All right? All right. Amen. (laughs) So just real quick, what are we doing to make the world a better place? well we 're doing a lot. Uh, I, I hope you are doing a lot every every week from Monday through Saturday, engaging in your anointed callings in the power of the holy Spirit but as a as a corporate community, one of the things we 're doing is we 're reforming the church, trying to get the church straight so that we can be um, effective at helping the world so you 'll hear me say a few things about politics here and there and And politics flows from culture, which flows from theology, as you well know. You cannot. There's no. There's no like politics on one side and religion on the other. It's all. It all flows from itself. Okay, but you're not going to hear me too much talk about political strategies um, because we have so much work to do in the church, (laughs) and I'm an officer in the in the church okay? I'm very thankful for Christians who are engaged in political strategies. We need somebody to play defense, right? But unless the church gets its act together, we'll never hold the football, right? If you're not holding the ball, you're not scoring any touchdowns. So look, I'm glad for Christians, Obadiah types who are engaged in political strategies, playing good defense, keeping, it at least, keeping our country at least free so that we can at least have these classes, Right? But if we, don't embrace, if we don't take part and use the freedom that we have now to get our act together and, and to reform ourselves according to the laws of God, it will most certainly be taken from us. Right. <clears throat> so how do we respond to persecution? Well, we first respond in the church. Um, our, first, our gut reaction shouldn't be to establish a lobby group, right? though that's fine. But that shouldn't be our first response. Our first response should be to sing the imprecatory psalms against our persecutors in the church, right? The first thing should be us to petition the Lord in worship when we have access there to his throne as a congregation. Petition him for help, right? Appeal to the covenant Lord to make good on his covenant promises of doing what? Of blessing those who bless us and cursing those who curse us. That's what should be how we respond to persecution first and foremost. The church has got to get our act together first. How do we respond to abortion? How does the church respond to abortion? Got to get the right, um, you know, civil servants in office. No, we need to get the right pastors in pulpits. It is, the political comes after the cultural, which comes after the ecclesiastical, the religious, right? The reason why there is abortion in America, I do believe, and I can't verify this for you or or make my case right now, but is because the church is preaching abortion, (coughs) often, either through their silence or their rebellion and ignorance. What do you think you're preaching when you preach feminism? You're preaching abortion. Abortion is the sacrament of feminism, which allows women to, quote, stay on the same footing as men out in society. Right? When the church does not believe, the church, 85% of the church in Acadiana does not believe that the command to be fruitful and multiply is still a command for us. The, the young men and women of the churches all over Acadiana take birth control, plan B pills. They delay, unduly delay marriage, unduly delay the birth of children Because their hearts are filled with faulty and and proud opinions and arguments, which their pastors won't deconstruct, and their parents keep sending them to the priests and the prophets at the universities where they learn this stuff, and then they're on the TV all day long learning and learning and learning, and the pastors won't do battle. And as soon as one pastor does battle, he's immediately marginalized and excommunicated from all the other pastors in town. Ask me how I know, right? Like, we have to, if we're going to stop abortion, we must engage in our divinely powerful weapons, which is preaching the word of God and prayer, taking every thought captive, destroying strongholds and arguments and opinions. We have to do that in the church first if we're ever going to get to the point where we can teach Acadiana how to obey all of his law to observe all that he has commanded you see what I mean? So we have a lot. We got a lot of work to do as a church. All the churches around here have a lot to do. A lot of work to do on ourselves, right? As the famous prophet Michael Jackson says, "Do I need to say? If you want to make a change, no, <laughs> so take a look at the self. All right, I'll cl- I'll close with a few a few verses for you. Will this? Because it's not looking good right now, okay? I'll just be honest. It's not looking good right now. Things are nice. We're comfortable. But it looks like things could really go bad really quick, you know? How can you have so much hope and so much purpose for this mission, you know? Because God so loved the world, John three sixteen, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amen? All right. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Not after history, in history, when people still need saving. All right. All right. You ever read that verse like that? way? You ever, ever read that second half of it? Hmm. People like to say that the world means every single individual. All you have to do is read verse 17 and say, well, does it mean every single individual when it says, right, this, that the world should be saved? Right. No, the world means the cosmos. It is literally the Greek word cosmos. Right? And he is saving it and he will save it. Right? John saw this in a vision. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, a tiny little remnant plucked out of the fire, a, a band of brothers just, you know, sh- you know, cluttered up in their Alamo. Oh, no, no, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and the Lamb and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, speaking of their regeneration of the Spirit and their forgiveness of sins and their holiness and cleanness before the Lord and His sanctuary, with palm branches in their hands. What is the palm branch a signal of in Hebrew? Victory. This is why they waved it when Jesus came into town in his triumphal entry. He, it was a general's, it was a conqueror's procession. Augustine, and this is for the church in America <clears throat> whose lives are vastly better and easier than Augustine could have ever even imagined. We sleep on bedsheets that even the emperors of Rome could, could even imagine, right? Silk and satin. Listen, the clouds roll with thunder, Augustine says, that the house of the Lord shall be built throughout the earth. The clouds roll with thunder. All nature is screaming this gospel promise. And these frogs sit in their marsh and croak. We're the only Christians. (laughs) It's a good period on the end of that sentence. (laughs) So may your faith be restored in the gospel, in the faith once for all delivered, and may all the doubts sowed by the devil and his minions be eradicated. Why? Because he has, listen, poured out his spirit upon us, given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, equipped us with divinely powerful weapons, promised us inevitable victory, and, but, uh, but we must believe. We must believe. A centurion came to Jesus and said, Sir, my child is sick. And Jesus said, Well, let's go on over to your house. He says, Hey, I am a a military man, just as you. I have authority, just as you have authority. And I know I can tell my men, do this and they do it. Do that and they do it. All you need to do is speak the word and he will be healed. And Jesus said, I have never seen anyone with faith like this in all of Israel. He believed the covenantal promises of health, even though he was a Gentile. And Jesus said, go, your faith has healed him. Of course, his faith is the instrument through which we receive the promises given to us and articulated in the covenant. Faith is the open hand that he puts the, prom- the fulfillment of the promises in. If our hand is closed, he will not give us the promises. The woman who had the issue of blood muscled her way through the crowds just to touch his robe because she believed that health was a covenantal promise and he was a covenantal Lord. And she, she had claims on him and he healed her because her faith, not in the manipulative prosperity gospel pantheistic force teaching that is around, that faith is a mechanism by which you manipulate the automated universe like a lever, like a vending machine. No, it's faith in promises revealed to you in Scripture in the covenant, which we call the gospel. That's why she was healed. Amen? We, mu- we have everything we need to be victorious in the Holy Spirit, but we must believe. We must believe. Amen. Y'all have a great Sunday.